Welcome to the Podglomerate. You have to be so tight and efficient that you have to always be thinking like, page 63, I say this, but it's similar to this beat on page 37, so I can't do the same thing. Books have so much more space that I could really let each moment be its own full moment, which is great. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. And I am Kyle. Well, I just want to get something out there. Depending on when you may be listening to this episode, uh, you may have just heard a trailer for a show called Status. Uh, it is a part of a network I started called The Podglomerate. Status is a particular show that tells the stories of immigration policy and the people that that policy affects. Uh, it is currently in the beginning of season two and focusing on dreamers, the children affected by the uh, DACA Act. Uh, he has some cool little pieces in there that explain what DACA actually is. Uh, Status is one of the shows that we launched the network with. We, we've almost doubled in uh, number of shows since we launched back in July. It's been growing substantially ever since, and we're, we're really, really proud of it. So I hope that you check out the show. Uh, whether you're just listening to this because of the trailer or if this is you know months and months down the line you've never heard it before uh, we also have a bunch of other cool shows uh, one of them is called consumed with scott porch he is a tv and streaming writer for decider.com playboy the new york times and ironically the same day that this particular episode comes out he is sharing a guest with us because uh, this week on the show we have john august and he also interviewed john this week so it would be great to listen to both of these interviews and compare the two and then tweet to us at wwdw podcast and consumed podcast and tell us which one you liked better uh but kyle who is john august John August is somebody that I've been listening to for a long time now. He hosts a podcast called Script Notes with Craig Mazin, and the two of them are screenwriters who've been working for a long time, and they get on and they talk about issues that are interesting to screenwriters. If you're at all interested in the way that movies are made, I would highly recommend it. And he just launched a new podcast called Launch. Jeff, why don't you tell me about Launch? Uh, Launch is a brand new show that goes into every step of the creation of a novel, or nonfiction book, I guess, uh, would still apply. But John uh, has always wanted to write his own book because every time he writes a screenplay or helps adopt or adapt a book, he, he gets into this kind of scenario where he doesn't actually control the finished product. So he really wanted to control this thing from, you know, ideation to, uh, you know, getting it on the shelves in bookstores. And as of today, the book has been on shelves for 24 hours. It is called Arlo Finch and the Valley of Fire. It is a middle grade reader book. It's awesome. I read it. Uh, really, really engaging. I would buy it, you know, for yourself or for any kids in your life. Um, but it's kind of cool because Launch is a six-part series that goes into uh, how to choose a cover design and the font and choosing an agent and bringing this book to um, you know, market with publicity. And he actually spends an episode where he goes to the printers and you get to see like literally how the sausage is made when it comes to uh, reading and writing. Um, you know, he's a really, really engaging guy. He obviously knows what he's doing when it comes to storytelling because he's had a podcast for like 300 plus episodes. Uh, and we really enjoyed having him on the show. 
And if you're like me and you don't know what middle grade means, go and listen to the podcast. It gets into all of the gory details about what it takes to write and sell a book. I highly recommend the podcast. Welcome to Writers Don't Write. This week we have John August. Welcome, John. How are you? Very well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Of course. We are really excited to have you. And what really got us to push for this interview hard was a new podcast that you just launched, which is very, very in line with what we're trying to do at Writers Who Don't Write. Basically, you have spent the last year or two uh, recording interviews with people that are involved in the process of publishing a book that you have coming out presumably this week when this episode airs, uh, Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire. So can you give us, in your own words, a, a little bit of background? Absolutely. So about two years ago, I started writing a book. And at the same time, I started recording interviews with everybody I was talking to about the book. So you know, I've done a lot of movies. I'm mostly a screenwriter, but this was all new to me. And so as I was asking these questions, I realized, you know what, these people are talking to me, they're answering my questions, I might as well get it on tape so other people could have the answers to these questions. So that I recorded for about a year before I really figured out like, oh, I think it's this kind of podcast. And uh, I went to uh, some various places and Wondery ended up picking it up. And so now we're doing a six episode series. Um, episode four should have just uh, come out by the time this podcast airs. Um, but basically, each episode is tracking a part of the journey. So episode one tracks uh, the idea to getting an agent. Episode two tracks my editor and sort of turning in the book. Episode three is a book by its cover. So it's it's the story of how the cover came to be, the edits, uh, dealing with the audiobook. And episode four, the one, one which has just come out, is uh, the whole printing process. And so I actually got to go visit the printing plant and see how my book is actually made, which was great. I got to say, when I first heard you were doing this podcast, I was insanely jealous because it is the best idea for a podcast <laughs> and it's also sort of the perfect application of what we try and do on this podcast which is get into the nitty-gritty of how a book gets mm -hmm. made how it's written um, what the career of the author is like that leads up to the moment where the book is actually commissioned and then on through publication and all of that um, I will say I didn't realize it was only going to be six episodes do you think that you know you could just keep making launch forever. So what I will say, the, the, the steep learning curve I, I faced was that um, a show like Script Notes, the other podcast I do, or the show that you guys are doing, um, is really straightforward. It's just people chatting. And that is a lovely format. Uh, but launch is the more scripted form. So I have a tape and I'm writing to tape. And uh, I have to go through and then narrate the whole thing. And it is just exponentially more work. Uh, so no, I can't promise that I'll be able to do a lot more uh, launches down the road, but I definitely will be following, hopefully following the process a little bit later on. And there'll be some, I, I hope some episodes down the road that sort of track what's happened with the book and what the next steps are. But, uh, oh my God, I couldn't do this on a weekly basis. Uh, after we record this, I have to go through and, uh, finish the script for episode four. And then we have to go in and, and track that. So it's just, it's a very different beast. So can we talk a little bit about the writing for, um, the podcast sure. and how it differs from the writing that you've done for the novel and the, the screenplays. That Absolutely. So the biggest difference is that I'm writing with tape uh, already there. So whenever I recorded interviews, uh, they would all go into this big folder of, with files on Dropbox and then transcribed. And so then uh, Megan, my producer, would send them off uh, to get transcribed, to get them back. She'd go through and sort of pick like the best moments of tape 
and should copy and paste those into a big Google Doc. Originally, we were trying to do this all in sort of in Highland, which is my own app, and uh, we were doing it just in sort of a flat file. And it turned out we absolutely had to have like a shared document that everybody was staring at. So she pasted those things in. Then I go through and sort of rearrange stuff and then figure out like, okay, these are the parts I really want. Here's how I'm going to write from this part to that part. And I thought like, oh, it might take me like two or three hours to write the script for it. It takes like 20 hours to write the script for things. It's, just, it's much harder wow. to figure out how it all fits together. But then once we're actually happy with that, we do uh, a scratch track, which is basically I go through and read the narration. Uh, you know, we, the producer cuts in the tape. We listen to that. We decide it's terrible. And then we go back through it and edit it again. Um, you know, we approve comments and changes. And then I go in and record the real one. But then there's still probably, like, even for the episode that came out yesterday, I had to go in, like, you know, in the afternoon and, like, record some fixes. So it's just, it's so much more time-consuming than anything I've done before. The other big challenge is trying to write towards my speaking voice rather than my writing voice. And they're very similar, but they're not quite the same. And so I have to really plan for my wells and all those and nows and all the little connector words you use when you speak that you don't use when you write. Do you like really find that this has been a, a helpful activity for you? I mean, I know that this is probably the dream when it comes to you know your publisher and the marketing and the PR team, but do you think that this has uh, been an experiment that has taught you a lot? It's definitely taught me a lot. I, I definitely have a much greater appreciation for how hard it is to make really good radio. So the, the shows like Startup or really any of the Gimlet shows um, or Planet Money's, it's hard to do that. And some of the things that kind of annoy me about those shows, I understand a lot better now because I've seen how challenging it is to make those uh, things make sense. Uh, so you also sort of recognize, uh, you guys have, you know, I don't know, maybe you guys have made some films. Once you've made some films, you start to recognize editing, you start to recognize certain things that are being done behind the scenes. And uh, an example of a thing that I learned doing this is sometimes you'll, you know, I'll be talking and you'll cut to another person talking. And then after the person has said like two sentences, then you'll ID the person and say who that person is. Um, that's called a back ID. And uh, it's really cool to do, but it's really annoying if you do it too much. And so it's, <laughs> it's one of those things you have to sort of plan for and figure out how you're going to use it and where you're not going to use it. Um, how you're going to put music in um, to sort of create... Um, they're almost like chapter breaks. You know, it, it creates an emotional sense of like, oh, that's all one idea, and now we're on to the next idea. You have to really plan for that, and uh, it's writing. It's writing in a way that I hadn't expected it to be. Is there a way that you organize that writing? Like, I know sometimes, uh, I, I haven't done any screenwriting myself, but I've seen, I guess, the, the photos of writing rooms where they put postcards or... Mm -hmm post-it notes up on the wall to separate the act breaks and things like that. Have you done anything like that for writing the podcast? Yeah, the podcast is um, has three parts. and we, Sometimes we call them acts, but the, or we just call them parts. The launch is structured with a teaser, and then there's an, an ad break. Then there's a, about a 12-minute act one, an act break with commercials, a 12-minute act two, commercials, and then as long as the third act needs to be. That was really a stipulation of Wondery. It's the company that's sort of making the show and sort of how they do things. It's fine. It, it was. It gave us a basic structure to be thinking about, like, okay, all of this stuff will be in the first part. This will be the second part, and you kind of write up towards the act breaks, which is very classically how you do broadcast TV, where you try to try to have rising action. You sort of set up like there's a question as you go into the act break, and then you come out of the act break 
answering that question and getting on to the next thing. Um, so that's been fine. And as we're you know outlining things, usually at the top of the document, it'll just be like a little slug line saying like, uh, teaser, this, act one, these three things, act two, these three things, act three, you know, the wrap up. So yeah, there's some planning that way, but a lot of times the tape is pointing us to what's really going to be interesting. Mm -hmm. So you get kind of a blueprint and then that blueprint is molded by, uh, I call it molding the garbage actually. It's, mm -hmm. yeah. it's yeah, it basically you take what you already have and you, uh, you take what you're equipped with and then you turn it into whatever magic you can make. Um, yep. And you can definitely tell that, you know, you're doing a lot of that and it comes across and it's, it's informative and fun and, and engaging very much like a TV show, which is kind of one of Wandery's specialties. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if you had any pushback at all with the way that uh, they wanted to structure this as opposed to like the vision that you had in your own head before this started. This was largely, I think what I had in my, my head, uh, I, I wasn't quite sure how long the acts would be. I think it's, it's sort of an arbitrary distinction, but I know when I listen to shows, it's frustrating when they, there are too many wedged in there. So it's been fine. Uh, I, I do think that podcasting is still so nascent that it can take a lot of different shapes. You know, you could have, obviously Script Notes has had no ads the entire time, which is just sort of the nature of that show. Um, I knew doing this show that I would have to do ad breaks. And so I wanted to make sure those ad reads were palatable, that I, I wasn't embarrassed by the ad reads. And so I actually went through and re-recorded all of them just so that I would feel, you know, comfortable and wouldn't cringe every time they came up. Because, you know, I do listen to the show myself and it's, I, I want it to be a good experience. So Script Notes doesn't have any ad breaks, but you have found other ways to monetize the surrounding media, I guess you would call it. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you developed your strategy there and the things that you've done to to make Script Notes profitable? Uh, Script Notes is not, I don't think, technically profitable. <laughs> it's, it, it loses less money than it used to. So uh, Craig and I don't get any money out of it. But what we do is we sell T-shirts and we sell um, USB drives that have the first 300 episodes on it. Um, we also have subscriptions through Libsyn, which are two bucks a month, that give you access to all the back catalogs digitally. Um, and through those, we we pay for mostly our editor, Matthew, who does also a lot of our music. We pay for uh, John, who does our transcripts. And we pay some of Megan's salary, who's our producer, but is also my assistant. And uh, it just defrays some of the costs, but it's, it's not mm -hmm. a genuinely profitable model. I think we have a big enough audience base that if we really wanted to, we could probably do ads and do normal stuff. But that would be just so much more time for us to be thinking about planning for that at this point, we're just sticking with you know our, our ad-free basis. So you've reached a nice equilibrium. Yeah. Um, so you know, in the early days, uh, our hosting costs were enough that you know every month Craig was cutting me a check for half of the hosting costs. So uh, we've definitely made some progress there. Yeah, we're we're experimenting uh, with a lot of different formats with writers who don't write, and I also own a small podcast network myself called the Podglomerate. Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, we have, we have a lot of different, um, moving pieces there and it's funny, the costs always come up where you least expect them to. Yeah. But it sounds like you've made a really interesting model and I'm curious how this has affected, you know, the scenario of the book itself. Like I, I, I'm willing to bet that when the podcast launched, the book sales kind of skyrocketed a little bit. And I know that the book yeah. is not on shelves yet, but pre-orders, um, so. Yeah. So. I don't really know. And so I don't have access to the pre-order stuff. Mm -hmm. And Macmillan, my publisher, uh, they were curious what the podcast was going to be like, but 
they weren't banking on this being an important part of the marketing plan. They were still doing all the things they would normally do for a middle grade title, which is, you know, they sent me out on um, a bookstore tour, you know, to sort of visit with bookstores before launch. Um, they taught, took me to the ABA to sort of meet with more booksellers there. I'm going to do a normal two-week book tour, go to visit a lot of elementary schools. I'm going to do all the classic things we do for middle grade fiction because we just don't know. There hasn't been anything quite like uh, this launch podcast is sort of how it ties into the book. I, you know, I would think that if I were someone who was listening to the podcast, I'd be really curious what the book was like and would mm-hmm. have some emotional stakes in sort of seeing it succeed. Um, so I think there will be some people who seek it out because of that. Uh, but I don't know what a, how big a number that's going to really be. I think it's, the book is going to really have to succeed on its own terms. Yeah. Um, and if the podcast would just be, you know, it might steer a few more people towards it, but I don't think it's going to be a huge uh, dial shift for it. Yeah, I've been glancing at the Amazon numbers, and I actually just read the book. Uh, we got it Sunday night. I just finished it this morning, um, and I can I can uh, give my endorsement to this title. I think it was great. Thank you. It was it was full of all the wonder that we've come <laughs> to the expect. Jeff Umber stamp of approval. You can nice. use put that on the book jacket. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but no, it, it really was. It was exactly kind of what I expected it to be based on listening to the show. And I I mean, I'm only two and a half episodes into launch at this point. Um, but I can also endorse that. And I, I, ironically, I'm, I'm not a script notes, uh, listener just because Mm -hmm. screenwriting has always been like the other side of the coin for me. But I, I will say that this whole thing has really fascinated me in the way that you approached it. And I'm curious how, like, it, it sounds like, uh, McMillan didn't put, you know, a ton of stock into this, but I am curious if they're using it with like the press materials and the marketing materials, um, because they, they really tip a publisher will typically look for any angle that they can to get this in front of the media and make it like a unique, interesting story. I will say that, you know, the lead up to the launch of the podcast and the launch of the book, the two publicity, the two publicists had to sort of talk and coordinate so that they weren't pitching the same, place with both things. And so in most of the interviews I do, you know, I started off talking about the podcast, now I'm talking about the book. There's a, a nice handoff b- between the two. Um, but it's, it's you know, there are very different worlds. And I think especially uh, a middle grade title versus an adult title, you know, a kid is not going to be listening to the podcast. Some kids do listen to the podcast, but it's, it's mostly um, adults and writers who listen to the podcast who are not necessarily the audience for this book. And so there's some overlap, but yeah, but not a huge amount. So I think, I, to their credit, um, McMillan has been really good about just like you know we're we're pushing the book the way we push these books. Yeah, but it is interesting though. You know, I have uh, a couple cousins that are you know eight, ten, and twelve, and uh, I, I've already um, pre-ordered a copy to give to the twelve-year-old, and just because you know she's a huge Harry Potter, Star Wars fan, and great, and this is you know very much in line with that. Uh, so, it, I mean, whether it was intended or not, you know, there, there's already at least one sale from this show. Uh, All right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, you know, your creative process as well, because you you kind of glossed over the fact that, you know, it took you, well, not glossed over, but it took you uh, eight months, I think, to write this thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm very curious about how you actually sat down and wrote it and structured the thing. Um, like what were your sticking points? Where did you really thrive? You know, did the whole thing kind of come to you fully formed? And also how does this differ from your typical experience writing a screenplay? So 
the book started um, on a conversation with uh, another middle grade author whose book I was talking about adapting. And so um, he had written this this really great, scary middle grade title that uh, I was sent to consider as an adaptation for a movie. And on that conversation, he talked me through like, oh, this is sort of how middle grade works. And I realized like, oh, all this stuff I've been carrying in the back of my head saying like, oh, at some point I'm going to write that. That's probably a middle grade book title. And so it was that night I started writing. I wrote chapter one, which is basically the same chapter one that you read in the book. And uh, that was, you know, October 30th, uh, two years ago. And uh, over that next month, I wrote the first six chapters, six and a half chapters. And that was sort of all I had. And I took that to uh, my feature agent and he said, this is really good. We took it to a book scout. He's like, this is really good. And she took it to Jody Reamer, who became my agent. And we ended up selling the book off of those six chapters. And um, I think the most persistent uh, sort of frustrated feedback I've gotten from people who listen to the launch podcast is like, wait, you sold the book just off of six chapters. Like that never happens. (laughs) And, uh, And that... I, I try to be honest with like, you know, it is a special case because, um, you know, people could read these six chapters and see like the movies I'd written and say like, oh yeah, he can probably write the rest of this book. There's like not a question that he kind of knows how to write stuff. And uh, so that's how it happened. But so it was like, you know, you know, two months plus 20 years that sort of made that possible. Um, but once I'd sell, sold those first six chapters and the proposals for the three books, um, the actual writing of it was kind of delightful in that usually when I'm writing a screenplay, uh, there's so many voices involved. There's so many people who have opinions that um, my job is to write the best screenplay I can while constantly being aware of what everybody else needs to do. And in this case, the only person I needed to make happy was myself. So, uh, you know, I would send my daughter off to school and I could sit down and spend, you know, three, four hours really just working inside the book. And I would only work chapter by chapter. Each chapter was a separate file. Um, and I could just focus on making sure each of those chapters did what I wanted it to do. Once I was done with the chapter, I put it down, put it aside, and I would not go back to it until I'd really finished everything else. Unless later on I, I realized something I needed to stick back in that chapter or I needed to, to you know, refer back to something. I really kept the process as just like each chapter was a block that once it was finished, it was in the folder and I was working on the next one. And so that part of the process was just great because uh, usually as a screenplay, um, they're so, they have to be so tight and efficient that you have to always be thinking like, okay, on 60, page 63, I say this, but it's similar to this beat on page 37, so I can't do the same thing. Books have so much more space that I could really uh, let each moment be its own full moment, which was great. Um, when you were writing this, did you have a sort of story map or uh, a loose outline, or were you just sort of letting the chapters fall where they may? Uh, the first six chapters were all just discovery. Like, I, I literally did not know that he had an Uncle Wade until Uncle Wade showed up. Um, I didn't <laughs> know that his father was in China until I was halfway through that sentence. So all that stuff was just discovery. But once I sort of had the momentum, and before I really went back and finished the book, I did have a good sense of like, okay, these are the kinds of things that are going to be happening. I knew that the first book was the winter book. I knew that it was going to be structured around the Alpine Derby, which is based on the Klondike Derby, a real thing in Scouts. Um, I knew the general shape of where things were going, but I let myself be surprised along the way. I I definitely, um, I would listen to characters' voices as they started, um, you know, really expressing their personality and 
let them drive the scenes where it needed to drive the scenes. Um, in this first book, Arlo is a kind of passive character. And um, so the real challenge was trying to find a way to uh, keep him, make it feel like he still had agency at every moment, even though he wasn't always speaking up. And so there's a lot of moments in the book where people are, are talking around him and he's just observing. But that's also kind of the experience of being you know, a 12-year-old shy kid. A lot of stuff is happening around you and you're trying to make sense of it. So speaking of being a 12-year-old shy kid, uh, it struck me that writing a middle grade book is both easier and harder than writing uh, more adult fiction because you have you know simple like narrative structure that you have to uh, that's informed by you know the supposed age of the readers, but you also like really want to be imparting these life lessons that are kind of like hidden among the plot. Um, is that accurate? I would say that it's. It's easier only in the sense that you don't ha maybe put your the same pressure and expectation on yourself that you have to be fancy and adult at all times. And so you can be simple when it makes sense to be simple. Um, one of the things which was really exciting to me about you know writing prose fiction versus screenplay is that I had introspection. So I could get inside Arlo's head. And there's good chunks of the book where we are inside Arlo's head as he's trying to puzzle something out. And generally, he's like trying to fall back on core principles, you know, uh, a ranger is loyal, brave, kind, and true to figure out like what he should do next based on those things. And that was a really unique opportunity that uh, sort of only can exist in a book and sort of makes most sense in a middle grade book. But I would say that you know, shortly before I started writing this, I'd read um, To Kill a Mockingbird. And To Kill a Mockingbird has a young protagonist too. And even though it's not classically a kid's book, what I think it does so smartly is that you completely understand Scout's world, like how she sees things. But as an adult reader, you can go back and say, like, oh, there's a whole second thing happening here that Scout's not really aware of. And uh, that's fascinating as an adult reader. So I was always mindful that our, my primary audience for this book is kids. But the, a lot of adults are going to read this, too. And adults should be able to get a different thing out of it than just what the kids get. And so the adult characters in this book have some pretty complicated stuff happening. And Arlo's not necessarily always aware of it, but you as the reader hopefully are aware of some of the tensions that are there. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of pieces in here where I was just, you know, in my head I, I was aware of what was happening and, and I kind of got the sense that you were trying to like push our, our thoughts that way. But uh, I am very curious what it would be like if I was actually a twelve year old reading this and if I would pick up on those things. Yeah, so I've had enough test readers that uh, kids just don't see what they don't see. And so uh, that's a great thing about being that age is you don't, you know, you're aware of, of what the audience is, you're aware of what the author is really shining the spotlight on, but you don't stare too deeply into the shadows. And as adults, we're used to sort of looking into those shadows. And so we see a little bit more what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. John, what's going on with Mitch? Uh, Mitch, it's a whole complicated thing. So uh, you'll, <laughs> you'll find out more in book two about Mitch. Uh, both Mitch and Wade have uh, a surprising, uh, you know, relevance and sort of recall in in book two yeah um so uh so there, there's there's a lot happening there so are you still writing those at the moment now yes so book two as we speak uh has been handed in i got the notes back from the editor and uh once i'm through my book tour then i owe the rewrite on uh book two so one of the real challenges of a series is that they need a book every year and so 
uh, I'm responsible for making sure that that book gets in there in time. And so that's been one of the biggest, uh, not struggles, but just like, you know, to, to owe a book each year is just a, a huge commitment. And uh, that's a thing that I'm still sort of grappling with. So it's, it's really taken up all available time just to write that book. Yeah, how are you managing writing the next book uh, in between doing script notes and also writing for your new podcast launch? Uh, it's been challenging. And there's also all the other little corollary things I have to write because part of publicity is also you write things for other blogs, you write things for other websites. And so this week, as we're recording this, has been a lot of that. Um, but, you know, these are high class problems. It's, you know, it's busy, but, but good. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm mostly concerned with how you manage your writing schedule in between all of the publicity you must be doing at the moment. Um, for instance, you mentioned you're going to have to be doing a, a sort of book reading tour of middle schools or elementary Elementary schools. schools. So what usually happens with a middle grade title, I've learned, is uh, your book comes out and they send you to do school visits. And so a school visit is you go into an elementary school, um, sometimes middle school, but usually an elementary school, um, they've read your book or they've read part of your book. It's a big assembly. Um, I give a 40-minute PowerPoint presentation about something, not not the book itself, but sort of related things. And uh, then I sign a bunch of books, and then I go on to the next school. So in, in a given day, I might do two or three of those school visits. And then I, you know, I crash in a hotel room. I wake up super early in the morning. I fly to a new city, and I do it again. So that is going to be two weeks of my life starting on Monday. And uh, that is uh, terrifying. <laughs> oh, Good. this coming Monday. Yep. Good luck. So by the time, while the time this podcast, your podcast is out, uh, I will be on my tour. So I think I will have just left San Francisco and I'll be flying to Denver. Uh, so writing a pod, or writing a 40-minute presentation for uh, children, mm -hmm. how, how does that stack up against writing a book? Because I imagine it's going to be... Um, it's got to be a totally different experience, the audiovisual element of it. You know, I like doing uh, PowerPoint stuff, so I'm not too nervous about it. Uh, but, you know, ask me after I've done one or two of these and see how it's going. So, uh, you know, the good thing was when you have sort of a canned presentation, uh, and once you really know it and once I've rehearsed it enough, uh, as stuff comes up, I should be able to roll with it. Yeah. How do, how do you juggle all of the projects that you have? Because by my count, you are an author a podcaster mm -hmm. with two shows. Yep. Uh, you have created this software, um, mm -hmm. which I, I want to ask you more about because I don't really know anything about it. And you are also uh, juggling everything that comes along with like marketing, promoting, and production of these shows. So yep. are you just, and again, you mentioned you know high class problems, but do you just not have a social life for the next month or two? Oh, I, I've not had a social life for a couple months now. Um, yeah, so... Uh, it's a lot of things to juggle, and I don't always juggle it well. I, I'm this week is sort of firefighting, or sort of like you know you do the thing that is that is due soonest, and so th there's a bit of that. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends who are TV showrunners, and so their life is always this. And I've I've avoided trying to do a TV show partly because of that, because you're always in crisis. Um, the good thing about the book, you know, most of writing the book is it hasn't been crisis. And so if I get, you know, a thousand words written or if I get 300 words written, it's not a huge big deal versus when you have, you know, the weight and pressure of a whole TV show on your back, that is a real big deal. So I, I'm just getting through it right now the best I can. 
Um, but I'm looking forward to having just one thing that I have to focus on for a while. I'll, I'll always have my software company. I'll always have other, those other things. But to have one thing to have to write at a time is luxury. It's, it sounds like the more successful you are, then like the less of that one, one project at a time, time you'll have. To some degree, that's true. And but there's also, you know, there's there's great authors who really just work on one book a year, and that's their whole life. And mm-hmm. there's something delightful about that. Would you be Would you be happy doing that and giving up the screenwriting? Um, I I don't know yet. Um, I've liked screenwriting. There's a lot of things I love about it. There's a lot of things that are frustrating. It's frustrating in the sense that, as um, the screenwriter, I'm responsible for helping to build a plan for making a movie, but it's not the final thing itself. And a lot of the stuff I do as a screenwriter, if the movie gets made, it's invisible. But if the movie doesn't get made, it's just kind of wasted work. And so I'm I'm enjoying the fact that like my book actually exists on the world. So whether it's a hit or a flop, it'll still be there in the library and a kid can still read it. That's a great thing. Jeff, tell me a little bit more about CastBox. What is CastBox? So CastBox is an app that you can listen to podcasts on. It's available basically anywhere that you would ever want to listen to a podcast. iOS, Android, desktop. It also works with Google Home and Amazon Alexa. Uh, There are ranked lists and categories that will tell you what's hot right now. Uh, They have a lot of editor's choice suggestions. They have some featured shows. Uh, And one of my favorite features is you can actually do in-app search. Uh, So you can... You know, search a podcast based on words or topics that you like, uh, and the search function will actually pull those out um, from episodes or shows specifically. So, you know, say I want to learn about Bitcoin, it'll tell me all of the different shows out there that are talking about Bitcoin uh, so that I don't get caught in in a, a maze of my own habits. It sounds useful. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty great. Download the CastBox app today and try it. Can we talk about your software company? Sure. Because one of the one of the things that I think is very interesting about you in particular is you had been writing screenplays for a long time and then decided that uh, what existed. Well, actually, what, can you tell us about how Highland came to be and how Fountain came to be? Sure. So, uh, screenplays are an incredibly structured form of writing, and uh, there's just very natural margins on how stuff works. It's helpful that all screenplays look the same because it just makes it easy for people to compare two scripts and, and understand what's really happening. Um, but the standard is the format, the way it's laid out. The standard shouldn't be the file format. And the existing sort of quote-unquote standard was Final Draft, which is a, a very popular app for writing uh, screenplays, which is also just kind of terrible. And uh, I really hated working in Final Draft, and I was convinced there was a better way to, to write screenplays. So John Gruber had created this format called Markdown, which is a plain text way for writing for the web to write HTML. And I had a hunch that we could probably do the same kind of thing um, with plain text that could become screenplays. And so internally, we started developing a thing called, um, we called Fountain. Another guy had the same idea. Um, he called it Screenplay Markdown. We merged them together. And that became the Fountain spec, which is basically just, just if you're writing in plain text, it's a way to form properly formatted screenplays. Um, Stu, who did the other format, he went off and developed uh, an app called Slugline. We went off and developed an app called Highland. They both had the same basic idea, like you can write in plain text and it formats it for you. Um, I sort of had a, a vision of like, you know, 
taking Highland and making it into an app that could do screenplays, but could also do a lot of other stuff. And this is about the same time I was starting to write Arlo Finch. So we sort of built out Highland in a bigger way so it could do a lot of things I needed to have happen in a book. And so little things, which I'm sure you guys encounter all the time, is that sometimes you want to cut something, but you also want to hold on to it. Like, I need to cut it out of where it is, but it, I need to hold on to it because I may need to use it someplace later. And so classically, I might make like a little scratch file, which I just, I'm copy, copy and pasting stuff out and I'm putting it into a little backup file. I have like a hundred of those saved on my desktop right now. <laughs> so I think we can do in Highland is uh, you just select the text and you just drag it to the margin and it just grabs it as a little note and it sticks it all there in a note. And so it's called the bin and you can just like throw things in a bin and uh, it just keeps all those little pieces of text you want to hold on to, but you don't want in your document itself. Um, it has a good outliner to see sort of where you are in the document. You can leave notes for yourself. Um, uh, and one of the really crucial things for Arlo Finch is I was writing all of these chapters as separate files and I could have gone through and copy and pasted them all together. But in Highland, I can make a master document that has links to all those files and I can say assemble and it'll pull the whole book together. And so I wow. could, um, you know, just click and like, there's the whole book. And so when I needed to see the whole thing, it's there. But if I worked on any of those chapters, uh, it was still, it would always update in real time. So um, I could keep my chapters separate, but put them together easily when I needed to. So those were things that were all really helpful to me. And so it was a luxury of having like literally my, my designer and my coder downstairs. And so if something was bugging me about the app I was writing my book in, I could yell down to them and they could fix this thing that I wanted fixed. <laughs> hey, uh, I have 33 separate files here that I need to make one file. Yep. Uh, is there anything you guys can do? Yeah, so for, for my I for, for my for my coder Nima, that that was literally an hour's worth of work to to build wow. that feature, and it's a huge huge time saver because it's very much a you know, it's a very internety kind of thing. It's like you know that would be a, or a terminal command. That's the kind of thing that should be really straightforward, but apps don't tend to do that. That's such an incredibly useful feature to have. I feel like it would be useful not just in writing novels, but in also organizing my daily workflow. I'm an editor uh, by trade, mm -hmm. so I end up with a lot of client notes, um, a lot of account team notes, a lot of notes in disparate places yep. coming from different people. Uh, man, I can't even imagine how much easier my life would be if I had a way to aggregate those. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really helpful. Yeah, I think Google Google Drive was, was one of the first steps towards that. And it's, it is nice because uh, you're right, John, that most apps and programs don't really have you know, I mean, uh, most of them are built for ease of use, but a lot of them mm -hmm. are, are based on like what's going to be the most efficient way to do that, uh, but not necessarily the best way to do that. So it, yeah. it's, it's good that, that, you know, you're helping to tackle these problems. I, I have to ask you about Big Fish because Please. that was that was a film that I owned on DVD, probably watched it a hundred times, although it has been a couple of years. Uh, I might watch it again this week. Um, to me, and this is with like a very limited knowledge of, of your actual career path, but it seems like this may have been a kind of capstone or, or a feather in your hat. Uh, is this accurate? Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of Big Fish. And it came pretty early in my career, but you know, it definitely changed the trajectory of my career. You know, I'd, I got the rights to the book Big Fish uh, when it was a manuscript. And at that point, the only movie I had done was Go. It hadn't come out yet. And so it was still very early in my career, and it was just such a different kind of movie for me to tackle. But it became the, um, you know, I Go was a very useful sample that could show I could write a comedy, I could write a thriller, I could write an action movie. 
But Big Fish was a sample that I, I can write, you know, uh, things that make you cry. I can write sort of fantastical things. And it became, you know, hugely important. And also started the collaboration with Tim Burton, which led to, you know, a bunch of movies after that. Um, could you talk to us about what the process of adapting Big Fish was like? Absolutely. So, you know, I'd adapted two other books before that that hadn't shot. And in both of those cases, the authors weren't alive. They weren't around anymore. So Big Fish was the first time I had to sit across the table from an author. This was Daniel Wallace, and we were at an IHOP in uh, Virginia somewhere. And uh, he could tell me what was important to him about his book. Um, I could explain what was probably going to need to happen for it to make sense as a movie, and we could kind of hash it out. And it was, you know, there's a an author has to be able to sort of surrender um, some expectation and some you know, illusion of control when, you know, going into a movie process because movies just work so fundamentally different. Uh, Daniel Wallace's book is fantastic, um, but it's a bunch of these little fragmenty short t- fables. And I knew I would have to build out a much bigger framework to hold all these things. So stuff like the circus, um, the war, uh, the, the basic nature of um, who Will is and why he's coming back and what the nature of the conflict is between Will and Edward. That was all new stuff I was going to have to add to make the stories in the book hold together as a movie. And Daniel got it. I mean, when he read the first script, he described it as being like someone had taken his family and, and dressed them up in strange clothes, but he still recognized uh, the intention and the characters. And he's you know become a huge fan of the movie and also all the Broadway and subsequent musical versions of it. He's the guy who, um, he's probably seen more versions of Big Fish than I have. And now that you're uh, an author in your own right, uh, is there anything you could see? I guess it, it has the way that you look back on that process now changed knowing what you know? Um, I'm definitely mindful of how scary it is for an author to surrender some control over a thing that he's worked on for so many years. Um, I, I was involved early on in Wonder, the, the R.J. Palacio book, and uh, ultimately ended up setting it up at Lionsgate um, years and years and years ago. And uh, um, R.J. Palacio is a fantastic writer who created a fantastic book. And, but you know, at the time we were trying to do this together, uh, the book was blowing up and becoming hugely uh, successful. And she had a real sense of responsibility to the people who were becoming huge fans of this book to protect that vision of the book. And I was the person who needed to say, like, okay, these are things that are great in the book but are going to need to change for the movie. And that became a conflict that we just couldn't get past, which is fine. And um, ultimately, they were able to find a middle ground for the movie version that you know honored what she wanted to, to have be in the book and what the movie needed to do, but I wasn't going to be the guy who's going to be able to do that. So I think the process of writing this book myself made me realize uh, how scary it is for an author to see their work transformed. And it sounds like, um, it, at least in the case of Big Fish, you guys were able to manage a good working relationship, which I've heard is not always the case. Yeah, I, I know there are definitely situations where authors hate the movies that um, their uh, books were turned into. And that is the worst of all worlds because to have something with your name on it, something that has characters you created that you don't like is tough. And I know that because I've 
had movies that didn't turn out anything like I hoped. And uh, it's painful. My background is actually in book publishing, and, and we've mm-hmm. seen a lot of situations uh, like this. And I'm actually working with Doug Stanton right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his book, Horse Soldiers, was just adapted to 12 Strong. Oh, yeah. yeah. And which has been, you know, a really amazing success case. And I know Doug is very, very happy with the film. Uh, but, I mean, even he admits, and this is all public and in, in interviews and everything, that, you know, this is a Hollywood version of the events in the book. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, when it's something that's more of a creative endeavor than like a nonfiction journalistic endeavor, it, it must hurt a little bit to see uh, these changes made because, you know, just because it's done to translate better doesn't mean that, you know, the creator of this might not think that it's because the work was subpar or something like that. So Absolutely. And so with Arlo Finch, you know, quite early on, like right when we first sold the, the proposal to publishers, we got calls from, you know, other producers saying like, hey, you know, this, this could be Harry Potter. So why don't you sell us the rights to this book that you haven't even written yet? And uh, I had to say, let's no, hold off. Let me write the whole book. And uh, then once we had the whole book written, I had to say, okay, let's hold off. Let me write, the, let's not do anything right now. Because um, I didn't want to be thinking about the movie version while I was writing the books. And there's choices I would make differently if I knew that I had to adapt this into a movie. Because there's there's just stuff that's going. I know it's going to work better as a movie. Um, but I didn't want to make those choices for the books before I had to. And so um, at so this point, you know, I've said no to the offers mm-hmm. for the movie rights because, you know, again, I don't want to be planning the movies instead of planning the books. And I also know that most, you know, books don't become movies. Like it, it's very, it, it would be really remarkable if Arlo Finch became a movie. And so I don't want to be going down that road and be thinking about it or writing a script for it when that's you know probably not going to happen. So in the the launch podcast, uh, you know you've you've gone over actually a lot of these topics. Um, I'm curious if there's anything that didn't make it into launch so far anyway, because I know we've only listened to to half of it. Uh, that you kind of um, I don't know you you just didn't find a place for it. Maybe you didn't want to you know. Uh, offend someone or maybe you didn't want to uh you just thought it wasn't terribly relevant to like you know advancing the story of of that particular uh podcast well there are definitely a lot of interviews that we haven't used yet and you know some of them are great interviews but we just haven't had the reason to use them yet so somewhere down the road you know i could envision us releasing some of those interviews just as intact interviews because there were these great people we talked to which haven't had to use reason to use those bits of tape but uh, just this morning, we were recording this as episode three went up. Someone tweeted at me, it was like, why is the description of the episode so vastly different than the actual episode? And uh, I think it's because <clears throat> Wondery had grabbed the description text from my initial proposal for what episode three was supposed to be, uh, rather than actually listening to the episode and what's actually in it. And so uh, <clears throat> the description text shows like, you know, there's a fight over the title and like there's another book with the same um, same title and or a similar title. And so like, will I lose the name Arlo Finch? And that's a moment that happened and like we have tape on it, but it ultimately was not that interesting. And so the episode isn't about that at all. And so there's no reference to that whole title fight at all in the episode. Um, so that's a case where like a year ago when I was thinking like, Oh, what would the third episode be? That's what I thought the third episode would be. But now that we were here and we're putting all the tape together, it's like, Oh, it's much better for us to just be, you know, talking about the cover, talking about the blurbs, talking about sort of the, 
the nitty gritty details rather than this thing that almost happened that didn't happen. So um, there's a lot of those little bits of tape and there's, you know, moments that I thought were going to be crucial things that aren't crucial things in the end. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at the description right now. I, I hadn't noticed that. I listened to half of this uh, this morning. And for our listeners, we're we're recording this the day that episode three launched, uh, and it's it's fairly early in the morning, so um, we're playing a lot of catch up today. Uh, but you you really did create something that in the podcast space, to me anyway, feels very unique and and intriguing. And I know that it's loosely based on startup, which is uh, Alex Bloomberg launching. Um, Gimlet, which is a podcast network, and there's also, uh, you know, some callbacks to a lot of other shows that are out there. But I mean, this this really does feel like something that is very much its own. And I think you may have spurred uh, a lot more shows that are kind of going to to be similar to this in terms of like starting a journey and then following the creator on that journey. Absolutely, yeah. So I hope so. It's a really interesting form. That sense of you know, it's journalistic discovery, but also the person, it's like a first person discovery uh, show. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's more of those down the road. And definitely it, it works for everything. And, and especially in this particular instance, I think it's very helpful. I mean, the, the number one thing that we hear from our listeners is, uh, I mean, first it's, it's requests for a bunch of guests that we so far haven't been able to get. But uh, second is, um, you know, hey, this is great. This is really helpful. There's a, a whole group of people to called the they call themselves the 5 a.m. Writers Group. Uh, they use right. the hashtag on Twitter, and uh, they are some of our biggest fans. Um, and I mean, the entire idea behind this group is that they are just sitting there on Twitter, uh, like giving mm-hmm. each other support because they all have full time jobs, yeah. and the only time they can write is at 5 a.m. Uh, and this is another podcast that is kind of in tune with that. Um, you, you don't explicitly state this, but it does to me feel a little bit like, uh, one method of you kind of getting past writer's block for, you know, this novel that you've always wanted to write. Well, it gave me a good excuse to, you know, sort of ask the dumb questions that I would be otherwise nervous to ask. Cause I was asking them under the guise of the podcast and to sort of insert myself in the process in ways that were probably a little bit uh, pushy for an author to do, but I could, again, excuse it because it was for the podcast. So, you know, you know, getting my way into the, the book printing plant or some of the uh, micromanaging I did on uh, the font on the cover um, or some of the grammar things, uh, I had an excuse because it was all for the podcast. Um, it's also, I think, probably a self-defense mechanism because I knew writing this book that there's a chance that it's it's a hit and people love it, but there's also a chance that it's not a hit. And um, the podcast gives me some uh, fallback and like, well, yes, but I got good tape out of it. So uh, um, there's an aspect of like, you know, even if the book isn't a hit, well, maybe that's better radio. It's a way to hedge. Hedging, uh, getting good tape out of it. I mean, this is, um, I just want all of our listeners to realize, uh, and I don't want to be, you know, so focused on the monetary aspect of this, but, you know, this is a really clever way to also bring in some financial gain from, uh, like a side project that comes in, Mm -hmm. um, in relation to the book. And you actually talk about, uh, not specifically about bringing in money from this podcast, but you do talk about, you know, the money aspect of selling this book in the show. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had some sense of how money works for authors, but this was really the first time, you know, seeing it all there and, 
uh, yes, my deal was great, but uh, it's a lot of work for that for that money, and so it's you know, and there's few guarantees in you know, success. So you want to make sure that you are um, you're doing everything you can to sort of help the book be successful and help the book sell to the degree that you get to write more books. Yeah, and I know you talk about this in the first episode, but uh, for our listeners who who may not have listened yet. Uh, can you explain just a little bit about how like a deal is structured in terms of like the author advance on royalties and then the three different payments? Yeah, so uh, classically what happens is the advance is given to you in three chunks. So uh, there's a chunk when you you know sign the deal and start writing the book. There's the chunk when you deliver the draft and there's the chunk when the book actually comes out. And so um, if it's if it's $15,000, then there's five chunks of $5,000 each that come out. And for a three-book series... That basically happens for each of those books, and you know that's for the U.S. deal. The uh, international deals um, are similarly structured. Sometimes they lump the books together or in different ways. But uh, you know, I have ten different translations coming out, and you know, as you sign the contracts, they're very similar kinds of things, just with much, much, much smaller dollars for those other markets. Um, but when you get those advances, whatever the total of that advance is, let's say it's fifteen thousand dollars. Um, you don't get more than $15,000 until you've earned back that advance and you've earned back your advance by selling books. And so you get a percentage of each you know, hardcover book is at a certain rate, each paperback is at a certain rate. And uh, as you get through you know, higher and higher levels, then you get, your percentages increase a little bit. But uh, one of the things that I don't think it's made it into the podcast yet, but um, is a thing I heard again and again from authors is, Yes, you, you want to earn back your advance, but don't be thinking that if you don't earn back your advance that you're costing the publishers money. They're still making money. Uh, uh, they have a whole system and a whole business for how they do this. And so um, you don't, you know, you're not costing them their livelihood um, if you don't quite hit your advance. Yeah, there, and that's a whole, we should do a whole episode on that because, you know, there's cross promotion of other titles, there's selling backlist titles, there's uh, helping build up their audience so that they can market directly to new, uh, you know, potential readers. Uh, you know, they get one reader into their system and they might be able to sell them 20 books over a few years. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that is very helpful. And, uh, you know, it, it is uh, kind of interesting because, you know, you're basically incentivized as an author to sell as many books as you possibly can. Uh, and that is one reason why it's very helpful to already have like a pre-established platform, uh, you know, social media, email, other podcasts, that kind of thing, where you can help drive those sales. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm digging too much into the mechanics of everything. Uh, John, we bring people onto this show to discuss uh, one story they've always kind of struggled to tell. And, you know, a lot of our guests have talked about things that are like, you know, very generally speaking inane, but important to them. Uh, sometimes they're talking about things that are very uh, like traumatic or, or they don't want to write a story because it may affect, you know, their personal relationships or jobs or, uh, you know, economics, um, you know, it's something with their family members. Uh, but you have you've sent us a list of, of some of the things that um, that you've kind of struggled with in the past. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind, you know, kind of jumping into one or two of those. Absolutely. So the first thing on my list was the first ten pages of Big Fish, and so um, there's a link you can put in your show notes if you want to for the script for Big Fish. But the first ten pages of that script have to do so many different things, and 
that was probably of all of my time writing is the closest I've come to the cliche of like you type to type and like oh, I hate this you pull the page out of the typewriter crumple it up and like you know cut to a full trash can of of crumpled up papers um, in that first 10 pages I have to establish uh, that there's two timelines um, that there's a fantasy world and a real world that um, the Ewan McGregor character becomes the Albert Finney character the nature of why the Will character is frustrated with his father I have to age him up through that whole process that um, Will is getting married that um, there's essentially, I have to set up so many, I have to get so many plates spinning in those first 10 pages, plus that both Will and his father have narration ability, which is a really unusual thing for a movie. Um, so to try to find a way to get those first 10 pages to work was just torture. And um, it's like, you know, you are given a bunch of puzzle pieces, and you have to find a way to put them together, but you're not sure they even could fit together. And so you end up sort of shaving off little pieces to try to make them fit into a thing. And so I'm really proud of those first 10 pages and sort of how the movie gets itself going. Um, but it was probably just a month of my time just to get those 10 pages working. And once they did work, the rest of the script was a lot easier, but that just killed me. Um, and uh, I just remember so many days of staring at the screen, trying different things to try to make try to make it work, try to muscle through things, try to finesse through things. And eventually I just found the, the one little path through it. It was almost like, you know, you've played any of those video games where um, you're running and you have to like hit all the little steps just the right way. Uh, <laughs> I just had to keep trying again and again and again and eventually got through it. It was like, woohoo, like I actually um, got through the boss level finally. Which in this case was the first stage. The very first stage. But like the other parts, like, you know, at the end of Big Fish where he goes to the river, that's sort of the big emotional moment of it all. And that was surprisingly comfortable. Like I, I knew how to do that. I mean, that was very method writing. I would bring myself to tears and just hand write through that stuff. And, you know, I think, you know, being in an emotional state led to me picking the words that sort of created that emotion. And so that was actually very natural for me. But the, the logic puzzle of those first 10 pages were probably the hardest issue for me in Big Fish. So is that, a, is that something that happens regularly for you where uh, when the mechanics of how things are supposed to function get very complex, it sort of pulls you out of the area where you're able to write in that emotional state? Yeah, and sometimes you do wonder whether, you know, the puzzle-solving aspect of it uh, is, or the desire to feel clever uh, can sometimes uh, supersede the desire to like actually tell the story the best way it wants to be told. Um, sometimes I do worry that I'm doing this thing just because it's interesting to me, not because it's actually the best choice for telling the story beat. And um, in Big Fish, I think it was the right way to do it. But there have been other movies and other you know, things I've written where it's like, okay, I made myself, I made things very difficult for myself just to keep it interesting for me. But there probably was a simpler way to do that that would have been more effective. And so I'm always mindful of that. How do you recognize it in the moment when it's happening? If I've stopped caring about the characters um, and I'm just kind of following plot or following the mechanics of how I'm doing stuff rather than sort of the motivations of why characters are doing what they're doing, that's usually a, a red flag for me that there's something wrong here. There's a, a little technique I like to use sometimes when I get kind of stuck or things aren't working quite right is you sort of take a snapshot. So just imagine... Everyone who's in that moment, and in a movie, just it would be like just 
hitting pause. And then you look at each character who's in the scene and say, okay, what does that character want? What is that character trying to do? And just go inside each character's head. And if the character does not have a reason to be there, if the character doesn't have a point of view, that character shouldn't be there. Or you need to make some big fundamental change because uh, that's probably why that moment isn't working because you don't, that character has nothing to do. And in some ways in fiction, it's easier to forget that because at least in a movie, that character is standing around for five minutes with nothing to do. And like you notice like, oh, that character hasn't said anything for a long time. In books, those characters can just sort of just become invisible because they, if characters don't speak for a while or take an action for a while, you kind of forget they exist. Um, and even in Arlo Finch, you know, probably one of the most difficult moments for me was ironically just this moment after the big boss fight, basically, uh, the big showdown, you have these six characters standing around talking about what to do next. And keeping all that, keeping them all alive in that conversation, keeping it clear what people's perspective is, is really tough. And do you use that sort of, that, that technique you developed while you were screenwriting to pull yourself out and look at the characters and their placement within the scene? I do. And so you look at each of their sort of unique points of view on what they're trying to do next and then recognize that how they would have acted at the start of, the, of this whole adventure and how they're acting now. And then really, most crucially, what's Arlo's function in all this? Because Arlo is silent through most of it and he basically says, okay, shut up. I've got this. I can handle this. And <laughs> that's you know a change for Arlo. So it was being able to take a moment that was frustrating and use it in a way that helps propel the story forward and helps propel his arc forward. Because from that moment forward and also in the second book, he is a different character than he was in the first one because of the events that happened. I wonder if there's any technique that's sort of similar that you've developed while you've been writing Arlo Finch that differs from some of the stuff you used to do while you were screenwriting. Well, you know, because, you know, in a movie you can only describe what you see and what you hear, you're very, you know, you're limited to sort of what information you can convey to the audience. And so you don't have introspection in the character's head. Um, things are happening in real time, basically. You could cut ahead to a future moment, but you're basically in real time. One of the techniques which is so powerful in fiction is, you know, over the course of a couple sentences, I can you know, elide through a bunch of weeks, and that is great. And so I use that very sparingly in Arlo Finch. It's a little sophisticated, I think, sometimes for uh, middle grade readers, but I like to use it when it makes sense to use it. The other thing I used a lot were chapter breaks. And um, with a chapter break, you can either choose to like end at a moment of high tension and then use that tension after the break, or finish in a thought and then come back jumping ahead in time or jumping ahead to a new moment. And uh, chapter breaks are an amazing thing. And we don't have anything quite like them in in movies. We have, we've cut to, but it's harder mm. to sort of really reset the whole thing. And each chapter, you get a chance to sort of, you know, start the story again. Was there anything you found yourself doing too much of or having too much fun with now that you had the freedom to do it in fiction? Um, I, I had to make sure that Arlo's inner monologue, that Arlo's inner thoughts uh, didn't step on the actual forward progress of the plot. And so um, it wasn't, I didn't have to cut a lot of it out of um, the first book, but I was definitely aware of, of that. The other thing I would say was that it can be a challenge in movies as well is um, how much mystery to leave and sort of what mysteries you're setting up that you don't really mean to set up. An example would be in the first book, there's the question of why the mother moved the family to Pine Mountain, this little town in Colorado. And um, after the first draft, after people read it, it's like, oh, I'm looking forward to the second book where we finally understand uh, why the mom moved there. It's like, 
oh, no, 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 that's not meant to be like a serious mystery. Like that, that, that's meant to be resolved. And so I wrote a new scene that really wraps that whole thing up and lets Arlo understand, oh, this is why they moved here. And, uh, and that was hugely helpful because, you know, I had never intended for that to be a series long mystery. There are a lot of things that do carry over book to book, but I didn't want that one to be one of them. So recognizing what knots to tie off was really important. John, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to listen to you and Craig talking about screenwriting over the years. As someone who's not involved in screenwriting at all, it's a fascinating glimpse into just a a side of an industry that we all partake in but don't often get to see. And I was overjoyed to hear that you were jumping into novel, uh, to writing fiction, and I was also overjoyed to hear Launch, which is a fantastic glimpse into another aspect of a world that we don't usually get to see. So... Thanks for taking the time this morning to come and talk to us. Oh, about it was it. a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much, Sean. This was awesome. Great. Uh, and one question I do have for you before we let you go is, where can our uh, listeners find you online? Great. So on Twitter, I'm at John August. My website is johnaugust.com. Uh, if people want to read uh, the first couple chapters of Arlo Finch, it's just arlofinchbooks.com. All right, this has been Writers Who Don't Write, a production of The Podglomerate, which is a network of amazing shows. Uh, You should check them all out at thepodglomerate.com. You can check Writers Who Don't Write out uh, just by Googling Writers Who Don't Write or going to www.podcast.com or checking out thepodglomerate.com. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, and we hope that if you enjoyed this episode, you'll give us a rating on your podcast player of choice. Uh, It really helps us out. We don't pay to advertise a show. Every time you tell a friend about this, it helps us grow our audience, which gives us more advertising dollars, which makes it a little bit easier to swallow making this thing every week. So thank you in advance for any reviews that you are able to, uh, to give us, you know, recently I, I heard somebody call it national review day uh we don't ask for you know any money or donations or a patreon campaign all we ask is that you you know take two minutes out of your day and just tell people uh if you enjoyed the show or not so thank you ahead of time the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the show is from ryan dan of holland Patton public library the music that you heard in the middle of the show for the ads was ben sound of bensound.com you should check them both out they're very talented and they have much more work than we feature on the show you can hear more from john august on the launch podcast or on script notes or you can head to johnaugust.com it's as easy as it sounds it's j-o-h-n august like the month a-u-g-u-s-t johnaugust.com uh, and I really encourage everybody to go pick up a copy of Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire. Uh, there's a lot that went into this, just like there is every other book and every other author that we've had on the show. It's just this time we got to have a sneak peek behind the curtain. As always, let us know what you think on social media and let us know if we did a better job than Scott Porch on Consumed at WWDW Podcast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.